After dismissing pitches for more Journey to Shiloh and more A Time for Killing, (laughs) Hollywood finally gives the public Harrison Ford in a sequel to one of his own films with more American graffiti. It's the Ford Fiesta! I'm more Paul Preston. And I'm more Adam Witt. And before we talk about this return to the mid-60s, it's important to note that by this movie, Harrison Ford is in his late 30s, which means we still have 43 more years of Harrison Ford movies to cover here on the show. (laughs) I mean, it won't take 43 years, hopefully another year and change. We'd like to wrap up upon the release of Indiana Jones 5, but since we'll be at this for a while... You can help. Please. Help us, please. Tell your friends about the Lord's work we're doing here. Uh, like and share posts about the show. Subscribe where possible. And of course, follow us on social media at The Movie Guys, pretty much everywhere, and themovieguys.net. And it's guest week once again. There's going to be much more of that as the show rolls on. We'll have a fantastic guest. I mean, who doesn't want to talk about Harrison Ford? So every week, people right. are scrambling, Adam, scrambling to be on the show. Yes, it was just a tough sell to say, do you want to be on for uh, Frisco Kid? You know? <laughs> Not so tough, surprisingly, with... More American graffiti. This is true, actually, yeah. Uh, we found someone who not only agreed to talk about it, but is excited to talk about it with us. Fellow podcaster and movie lover, William Bibiani. So we can expect him later in the show. But first. What's new in the world of Harrison Ford? Well, first of all, James Mangold answered a fan's question on Twitter and claims shooting for Indiana Jones 5 will be done around the end of January. Very exciting. You gotta love his Twitter handle, at Mangold. We've always liked that name. Mangold. Yeah, someone just said, Happy New Year or Happy Birthday or something. Hey, when are you gonna be done with the movie? And he <laughs> gave him two seconds to say, should be done shooting by the end of the month. And that was, you know, That's awesome. This month. So while he's busy on the set, people are just making up news to have about Harrison Ford. Rumors are going nuts for Ford's return. In one of the Star Wars TV shows, I mean, I would imagine they're thinking maybe Book of Boba Fett, one of the web's most impressive deep fake artists, Shamook, has been hired by ILM. Ooh. So people are like, oh, you're going to de-age Han Solo and give him, offer him up in Book of Boba All sorts of rumors. Place going nuts uh, all about what could happen with Harrison Ford. Shamook. Rapper or deep fake artist? A deep fake artist or cantina patron? <laughs> <laughs> Shamook. Yeah. They get a DH Shamook and stick him in most nicely. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, I love to Google Harrison Ford news. Well, I don't like it, but I do it on the show. Because it always get? brings up something stupid. But, I know. Uh, it's the best. But in there, there was something interesting. I mean, we do enjoy Harrison Ford's biking. I don't, we keep reporting yes. on it. <laughs> and he was spotted in December doing more of it. <clears throat> Must have been, uh, you know, in Santa Monica he was spotted. So I guess they broke, broke for Christmas from the shoot. And he went back to here and... Uh, yeah, he's out biking. I mean, we were talking about this before we started recording. The guy looks better than, than either of us do, and he's 79. That's incredible. It's crazy. Right. And how much older than Sean Connery in Last Crusade is he now? He's playing the old Jones character, right? which was done by Connery, who was, when he did it, he was 57. So he's like 23 or 22 years younger than Harrison Ford is now. Crazy. And he was the old man back then. Wow. <laughs> oh, because it's Daily Mail... Uh, 
they also said that his jersey was clinging to him. So that's important to note as well. <laughs> Leave it to the Daily Mail. Uh, about Harrison Ford. <laughs> to hit the real details we need. How was his jersey hanging on his skinny body? Clinging. Well, Paul, it's always good to find out what's newly clinging to Harrison Ford. One more quick recurring show segment before we get to the recap. This date in Ford history. January 12th, 1975, Judgment, the court-martial of Lieutenant William Calley, debuts on ABC. Uh, This is a big role for him, I believe. We haven't gotten into any of his TV work, but we want to... Yeah, I don't know if that's Patreon, if we ever get off our ass to get the Patreon Yeah, I think that's because (laughs) he has like a horror movie out there, too. The whole thing's on YouTube. He has a horror movie, and he has a whole Western... And some episodes of TV shows that I've I've just watched a little of. So we definitely do want to do TV Harrison Ford someday. Um, and Lieutenant William uh, Judgment, the court martial Lieutenant William Calley, because as we're about to talk about here in a little bit, this is this is a, a Vietnam case, and that Harrison Ford's early acting career is just steeped in movies that are in some way about protest, and and today is going to be about the Vietnam War. And here he is uh, in a a, a high-profile case, Lieutenant William Calley. I I, I frankly have only inferred uh, some knowledge about Lieutenant William Calley from a uh, National Lampoon article making fun of it. Uh, Lieutenant William Calley's baby book? (laughs) Baby's first this, baby's first that. I think it was a— Oh, good Lord. Yeah, kind of war crimes above and beyond. War crimes, right, exactly. He knew there was killing going on. If it was wrong, why didn't he put a stop to it? But And everybody would have been watching this. You know, like this is ABC Monday Night Movie or that sort of thing. Like everybody watched these sort of things. So this probably would have been a very high profile. Wouldn't surprise me if some people saw Star Wars and was like, hey, it's the guy from Lieutenant William Calley. <laughs> but who knows if he's the lead because he's going to be a big face on the cover of yeah. the latest posters or, in a, <laughs> or DVDs anyway. so uh, January 20th, 2002, Harrison Ford wins the Cecil B. DeMille Award. Golden Globes are what they are now, which is disgraced. But still, it's a Lifetime Achievement Award for that thing, which used to be the, the uh, second to the Oscars. So yeah, Harrison Ford wins the Cecil B. DeMille Award, and I'm sure there's a, uh, a speech uh, we can look up about that, and maybe I'll drop in here. My luck is holding. I'm nominated in a category where the competition is dead. <laughs> All right, and the last thing before a recap of more American Graffiti, uh, we want to thank everyone who listens to this show, but these episodes have sparked conversation about Ford and his films uh, or sparked other cool comments, but no one has responded quite as thoroughly or effectively as Wendy Scott in the United Kingdom. Uh, she has given us some great responses to our work on uh, movieguys.net, and we'd like to cover a couple of the great points she's made and, and great facts that she's given to us on uh, movieguys.net. Uh, of course, paraphrasing here and there. Um, she added some fun facts about the movie Heroes. She said that in Peter Biskind's Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, Heroes director Jeremy Paul Kagan told Biskind about a time when Ford came to Kagan's home with his clothes completely torn up. When he asked what happened, Ford spoke about how he had stopped to buy an album in Tower Records on the way to Kagan's house and got mobbed when he was recognized by the Shopters. So obviously this must have been post-Star Wars and pre-Heroes release. Very interesting little story. When you hear about the partying that went on at the American Graffiti Hotel where everyone was housed up, you know, that'd be a different way to show up with your clothes torn. It's like, oh, I fell off the roof and 
landed in the pool or whatever. But this was no, this was fandom starting to hit. Yeah, hit what forward. album do you think he was trying to buy there at uh, Tower Records? <laughs> yeah, I don't know his musical taste at all. You know, stopped like, to buy Steve Martin's "Let's Get Small." <laughs> Uh, and we talked a lot about the cast members of Forest 10 from Navarone here on the show, from Harrison Ford, Robert Shaw, Carl Weathers, etc. Wendy wanted to add one more. One of our high school's regular supply teachers was also a part-time actor whom we all had seen on TV and various shows. He was one of Forest 10's background Nazi officers. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, he's tied up by Robert Shaw and shot by Franco Nero. Oh, wow. But he, he never stood in for one of my teachers again, so I could never speak to him about the film. That's a shame. But it'd be cool. Well... You know, there's many reasons you'd like to see your teacher shot on screen, but uh, <laughs> the substitutes are always pretty cool. So that must have been exciting for her. Uh, she also says another Force 10 fun fact. Guy Hamilton was once asked why he directed Force 10. And with a big smile on his face, Hamilton replied, I've got a lovely villa in Spain out of that. Uh, Ford apparently wasn't the only one doing it for money and billing. So <laughs> I'm in it for the money. The, the Michael Caine response. Yeah, right? I think it's been come known as. <laughs> I've never seen the movie, but I've seen the house it bought, and it looks lovely. I think that there was his response go. for uh, Jaws 4. Yeah. Uh, one suggestion for U.S. audiences on Hanover Street. If you think of Hanover Street as a U.S. romantic fantasy about World War II England, then it works better. Much better. Ah, uh, okay. That's true. As a straight movie, it's one thing, but as a fantasy about Americans <laughs> dreaming about the glorious wartime England love stories, I mean, that's what that could play out as, but uh, yeah. I think everything we're watching, though, this time through, we're just loving it. doesn't matter. But just, yeah, we, <laughs> we just adore these these movies. And I mean, I mean, I wake up someday and realize that none of these were good, but I'm just loving them all. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she gives us a compliment. As a Ford fan from Star Wars Forward, one of the issues I have with much younger fans is they don't really understand that Hicks' career wasn't really going anywhere in that period between the release of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. Uh, even though he was constantly working between the two, and he has never made so many films within a, such a space of time again. So it's been incredibly refreshing to hear you both acknowledging that. Yeah, and we, and we will for two more movies here, too, because it's amazing. He put out four movies in one year. Yeah, that is interesting that he became so... Like, I always talk about the 80s as the summer when you get your Tom Cruise movie, you get your Mel Gibson movie, you get your Harrison Ford movie, your Arnold movie, your Julia movie. You know, yeah. One a year. To get four in one year was rare. Oh, and also the future of Star Wars seems written now from this point of view or anybody that coming into Star Wars now. Well, this was obviously always going to be a huge thing. You know, sequels didn't make that much money. In fact, there was a pretty good chance the sequel was going to bomb. And Harrison Ford treated this much like the Beatles did with Hard Day's Night, which was like, well, how much longer could we possibly be famous? I've got, we got to do Hard Day's Night now. You know, it's like Harrison <laughs> Ford's like, I got to say yes to all these scripts. Nobody's going to care in a year. So if you see the Ford Fiesta posted at themovieguys.net, all of Wendy's comments are there. Uh, and she has a few more stories beyond what we covered here. So it's good reading. Uh, thank you, Wendy. And yeah, anybody go over to movieguys.net. Anyone who wants to talk Harrison Ford, start up the conversation. We're game. In fact, we may have gone on too long. Let's get to the recap because there's, a, there's another American graffiti movie. What's it about? More American Graffiti is the sequel to George Lucas's 1973 period piece that invented nostalgia and became the most profitable movie of all time before Lucas blew all box office records out of the sky with his 1977 follow-up. So an unknown made American Graffiti, but More American Graffiti was from the maker of Star Wars. More American Graffiti is American Graffiti for people who hate Richard Dreyfuss and wish Lucas hadn't directed. 
Considering this is Lucasfilm's first produced sequel, I'm surprised George Lucas didn't adopt this title edition for Star Wars, because I think we'd all agree those movies are, in fact, more Star Wars. Although a more appropriate title for this movie would be Meanwhile, because <laughs> the format of more American Graffiti seems like a middle finger to the studio that claimed the original American Graffiti was confusing. George Lucas sees your multiple storylines in a single evening and raises you New Year's Eve in four different years. Don't mess with me, man. <laughs> 1964, 65, 66, and 67 are the settings for tales featuring Milner, Terry, Debbie, and Steve and Laurie, respectively. Now that you've made the climb that steep, why don't we just shoot this movie like, oh, I don't know, a movie? Too easy, says the maker of whatever the hell THX 1138 was, and shoots them each in a different cinematic format. Drag racing is shot in 70mm, Vietnam is shot in square 16mm news camera, and the acid-dripped San Francisco of 1966 is edited in triptych split screen, and these sequences explore all of the narrative and psychedelic possibilities of split screen storytelling. The most beloved star of American graffiti returns. Music! According to Hollywood law, when you choose Vietnam songs, you have two options, Painted Black or Fortunate Son. But this sequel to a triple platinum selling soundtrack makes more inspired choices like Heatwave by Martha and the Vandellas and Pipeline by the Shantays. On December 31st, 1964, street racer John Milner is still racing, this time on drag strips in those long cars that are basically three wheels and an engine. He meets a woman named Eva, an Icelandic beauty who doesn't speak English. It goes very well for the two of them, probably because she can't understand him when he says, I'm devoting my life to short track top fuel drag racing. On New Year's Eve 1965, Terry the Toad is in the army on a tour of duty in Vietnam, desperate to get out by trying to shoot himself in the arm. But being Toad, he screws it up and ends up firing shots at his own troops, drawing the fire of the entire army on his position, escalating in strange love style to a jet airstrike destroying the entire area. In 1966, we catch up with Toad's former flame, Debbie, in Haight-Ashbury, living the life of a hippie. But that's not really what this movie's about. No sooner are we introduced to Debbie's hippie friend, Lance, than their hippie van is pulled over and hassled by the man. Pull over there! That man? Harrison Ford. Pull over now! Who plays motorcycle officer... Falfa. Officer Falfa. F-A-L-F-A. That's right, the very same fast-talking street racer from American Graffiti... I ain't nobody, dork. ...of course becomes a cop, busting hippies. Man, you got nothing better to do than hassle long hairs. My life, friend. I love my work. And it should be noted for fans of the podcast that here Harrison Ford turns in his only performance as a uniformed police officer. I said stop! And clocks three points and shouts in only 30 seconds of screen time. Pull over, I'll shoot out your tire! The 1966 scenes use split screen to emulate that technique from films of the time, such as Woodstock but use them in radical ways to advance the storytelling. Like a split screen showing Lance waiting in jail doing nothing, while Debbie tries to get bail money from her strip club manager in the other frame. A new storytelling device in a form that feels retro is the film equivalent to an impossible gymnastics triple-double. Meanwhile... In 1967, Steve and Lori Bolander, played by Ron Howard and Cindy Williams, are now married in suburbia. For those of you who listened to the Ford Fiesta episode of American Graffiti, you will realize that this is the fate worse than death that George Lucas could imagine if he hadn't become a filmmaker. Two kids, family hell. 
But 1967 is a long way from 1962, so Lori wants to be a modern woman and get a job rather than just be a stay-at-home mother. But Steve is stuck in his patriarchal past, putting his foot down that she's not allowed to vote. Oh, sorry, sorry, that she's not allowed to work. This discussion escalates to a dish-throwing argument that ends with Lori going to stay with her brother at Berkeley. No, not Kurt, the other brother, the one that wasn't in Jaws or The Goodbye Girl, the one that wasn't in the previous movie and wasn't busy winning an Oscar while this movie was shot. Meanwhile, Toad runs into a familiar face in Vietnam, the head of the Pharaoh's gang that adopted Kurt and Modesto a few years earlier, played by Bo Hopkins. Toad brings up the one-year anniversary of Milner's death, playing again with the narrative possibilities of this insane form of storytelling. Meanwhile... In 1967, Steve tries to Mr. Mom, taking care of a couple of -of out-of-control kids, and ends up looking like the lead in an infomercial right before he turns to camera and says, there's got to be a better way. He tries the 1950s method of smoothing things over with his wife, yelling at her. And when that doesn't work, he takes off to find her. Meanwhile... We are introduced to this movie's version of Colonel Kilgore, Bob Sinclair, a military stiff that's more mash than Apocalypse Now. In fact, being a sequel to basically a sober animal house on wheels, more American graffiti has to play everything for laughs, including Vietnam, with Toad trying everything short of dressing up like a woman to get out of the army, like trying to get injured during a football game set to the song Wooly Bully, another great musical choice. It is another great musical choice. George Lucas was supposed to direct Apocalypse Now with producer of American Graffiti, Francis Ford Coppola. And interestingly, more American Graffiti, produced without Coppola, was released the same day as Apocalypse Now. The differences in the way they present Vietnam, six years after the U.S. pulled out of the war, are striking. With Apocalypse Now, for the most part, deadly serious, but shot like a prestige art film, and more American graffiti, mostly goofy, shot in visceral documentary style. The news camera style serves the movie greatly when the tone shifts to the horrors of war, as Toad is sent with hothead pilot Bob Sinclair into a hot zone to pick up wounded. They land amongst gunfire and mortar explosions and pick up a bleeding, screaming soldier showing the horror of the wounded to Bob. Meanwhile... In 1967, Lori ends up at a full-on protest, in no way joining it, yelling at her brother as he burns his draft card that that's illegal. Meanwhile, Steve has trouble tracking down Lori because everyone thinks he's a narc. But then Steve realizes his mustache and sweater can get him anywhere because all he has to do is say he's a cop and they believe him. Lori ends up in a full-on campus riot, chased through the hallways and saved by her brother who turns a fire hose on the police. Including Getting Straight, this is the second time a Harrison Ford movie on this channel has featured a campus protest, and one of four movies with an anti-war message. Also, he dresses like a hippie in love. But it's all an interesting reminder that the timeless Harrison Ford movies we're about to cover were watched in a very specific time. Meanwhile... In 1964, Milner's storyline scares up all the drama possible about falling in love with a Swedish girl while chasing the big advertising dollars in top fuel drag racing. These are cars that are capable of losing sponsorship at 300 miles an hour in less than 3.7 seconds if you drive it off the quarter mile track and bend your frame while on the big day, which Milner does. And presumably his Swedish girlfriend had trouble grasping the concept of. I don't get it, and I only speak a little Swedish. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice... Debbie meets up with the band Electric Haze backstage at the Country Joe and the Fish Show, as one does. 
Debbie tries to pitch Lance's musical talent to them, and a band member says that he used to know a surfer named Lance, the name of the pro surfer played by Sam Bottoms in Apocalypse Now. Lance on the forward 50s was a famous surfer from the beaches south of LA. She ends up hanging with them in the van while they get in all kinds of trouble as their lead singer Newt, played by Scott Glenn, drives their van through trash cans and a park and crashes into a fire hydrant. Scott Glenn sighting. Didn't see that coming. Meanwhile... Lori is arrested and put in a paddy wagon bus with all the other women that had been arrested. Someone in the bus starts singing Baby Love, and everyone comes together through music, including Lori. When the guard threatens them, it is Lori who starts singing again in defiance, her first actual move of defiance and protest. It's a seismic shift for her, and doing it with a song from the soundtrack of More American Graffiti to boot. In 1965, Toad and Bob wait to be rescued from their crashed helicopter under fire from North Vietnam, viscerally shot with the handheld news camera. War could not be more differently shot here than Apocalypse Now. But I can't help but think the war photographer in these scenes is the Francis Ford Coppola cameo from Apocalypse Now. Meanwhile, the big brass, Major Creech, visits Terry's base and raises a glass to the success of the war. Satire alert. Satire alert. Satire. Wait, that's good. You just do that. That was sound good. Okay, do yours too. I'll put them together. Satire alert. Satire alert. Satire alert. Yeah, if you just have like boop behind it. Boop. That's fun. Damp, damp, damp. Satire. Sat. We should do the whole, what's the alarm bell sequence <laughs> from Carlos? <laughs> Satire. 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 Having recently been almost killed, Terry can no longer take the ramblings of these dolts who don't know what they're celebrating. He gets drastic and puts plastic explosives in the New Year's cake to blow up the major and excuses himself to the latrine. But when the explosives go off, it's the latrine that blows up, flinging poo all over the festivities. It's a dirty war. Terry has faked his own death. Major, move! The whole movie is edited like a Star Wars third act. Can an entire movie sustain this type of editing? <laughs> no. Debbie begins to forget her deadbeat boyfriend and embrace her own path, as she's coached in tambourine playing by Newt. Mercy. <laughs> but is quickly reminded of Lance when he shows up at the club making out with some other girl. The liberated Debbie punches him out, starting a bar brawl to a country tune by the Electric Haze. Steve catches up with Lori and tries to bust Lori out of the prison bus, but the cops threaten to arrest him too and hit him. But Steve finds his fight as well and punches a cop, leading to the women throwing the driver off the bus as Steve drives them all to freedom. Having bent his frame, Milner has very little time to repair it for the final match. But seconds before he's to be disqualified, he pulls to the starting line and wins the race. He is John Milner, after all. To celebrate, he decides to propose to his girlfriend of one day. He, to do so, he finds a Norwegian-speaking janitor to help him propose. So he won the big race and fell in love. Pretty good for the day he's going to die. As the movie comes to a close, Toad heads off into the woods, missing in action, as we know from the end credits of American Graffiti. The sound of silence narrates Debbie and Newt coming together as a couple as they drive through a pile of trash cans, which is their new thing. And Steve and Lori catch the New Year's countdown on a storefront TV, and Lori begins to sing Auld Lang Syne, which is montaged between all four groups singing the American Standard. 
While John Milner drives his familiar yellow 1932 Ford five-window coupe towards another car, as the taillights and headlights disappear into a dip on the road, it freeze frames with the ominous post-credits that Milner died that night. I think now they should make even more American graffiti and explain what Richard Dreyfuss was doing on New Year's Eve for those same four years. Have you seen more American graffiti? Like most of America, you're probably saying to yourself, like, have I seen American graffiti more than once? Because you probably don't know. There's a sequel to American graffiti. Well, there is, and it came out in 1979, and Adam and I hadn't seen it until now, so we wanted to bring someone on the show who could guide us through a conversation about this movie better than if we just talked about it ourselves. And this someone has not only seen more American graffiti before we did today, but likes it more than the original, so we had to talk about that. He's a film critic, co-host of multiple podcasts on the critically acclaimed network, and not for nothing, is currently the team's championship belt holder, <laughs> along with Brendan Meyer as the duo Shazam in the movie Trivia Schmodown. William Bibiani is with us. Hey! Hey! It's a thrill. Before I let that fact go, we almost had you. The movie guys we almost, had, almost you. had you. Almost you did. had you. <laughs> you did. That you were a second match ever against the movie guys. It was the first round of the team's tournament, and it was yours to win. We were behind you, and it was just a matter of if you hit your five, our entire trajectory, we probably didn't stay together after that year. Like The entire history of the Schmodown changes. And I would just like to thank the producers of North Country, uh, for doing for doing a good enough job to get nominated, but not a good enough job that the movie guys yeah. remembered it. Uh, because, uh, by the way, that's a good movie, by the way. But uh, still, yeah, that, was like, that, was, that was a hell of a match. Still one of the best we've ever played. I think you should thank the great Lord Pazuzu for your five. Yeah, please. <laughs> North Country, I watched, a, I may have told you this, I watched, I was in studio watching a live match and... The, ant- the, the question was the plot. What movie is it? I'm like, North Country. You reverse that and give me yeah. what film was Shirley's there and nominated oh. for. Didn't have it. Oh. Didn't have it. But we've all yeah. been there. We've all been there. That, that one question where we kick ourselves afterwards. Like, how did I screw that one up? Yep. Oh, well. Well, uh, more American graffiti is not a slice on the wheel in the movie Trivia Schmodown. There's not a lot of trivia about it, but uh, let me throw some facts at you. 1979, all right. six years after the first one. Is that. What is that in terms of sequels following a movie? Rare? The average? Now with so many happening so late after a movie comes out? Back in the 70s, was it just completely a fluke that no, a movie waits no, that long? No, no, no. Honestly, like, like there's there's always those movies where they start rapidly like churning them out like really, really fast, like your Tarzan movies or your Dracula movies. Oh, yeah. But Hollywood has been doing the whole remake sequel thing since the silent era. And it's just a matter of when can we get these people together? When can, when does it make sense? When does it fit the schedule? When is it, you know, cost effective? Um, when is there a good script sometimes? Uh, and, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's all, everyone thinks that we're in this kind of like completely like unusual era where everything is, everything is an intellectual property. Everything I know, is, right? No, it's always been like that. It's just been a little different. Like it wasn't so much based on comics. It was based on plays and novels and other forms of media that were super exciting. And then they would adapt them and they come out. That's what wizard of Oz is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's not that weird. What I do think is interesting about more American graffiti is it's one of those sequels that everyone remembers as being this like giant box office dud that nobody liked. And it actually made money. It actually like was it was a hit. It's not it's not unlike the um, John Travolta uh, movie Staying, Staying Alive. Alive. Yeah. 
which was a sequel to Saturday Night Fever. Like, Saturday Night Fever and American Graffiti were both these Oscar-nominated movies. Cultural landmarks. Major touchstones in the in the culture. And then their sequels were largely, like, you know, people rolled their eyes and stuff. But Staying Alive made a lot of money. And American Graffiti did a decent amount of money. It just wasn't the same hit. Uh, and it's just one of those things where when you make a sequel to something that's really beloved, that's something that feels kind of self-contained too, like it didn't end on a cliffhanger. Right. Um, you're kind of playing with fire because you either make something that's too similar and people aren't into it, or you make something that's too different and people aren't into it. <laughs> the numbers on that are around three million to make and fifteen million uh, in the box office. So yeah, that's, that's a definitely profit. a hit. It's just that's not. Very it's not two hundred million yeah. on seven hundred and seventy-seven thousand. Didn't happen. Uh, the, the tagline, more laughs, more music. That's the lame one. Uh, the other one is, the sights and... This is a long one. You know when the posters would like fill up half the poster with words? <laughs> yeah, back when movies didn't have to have... They didn't have to have like a good tagline. Yeah. They didn't have to have a good line. It's like, we can make a movie that's so hard to sell, <laughs> we have to give you like a full chapter of prologue right. in the poster just to give you the gist of it. The sights and sounds of the 60s. There were bittersweet times, there were funny times, and it was all unforgettable. What? I don't know. That's <laughs> that is that is no. Where were you in sixty two? I'll tell that you that. True. That 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 doesn't even mean anything. <laughs> no. Like, where were you in sixty two? Where were you in sixty two? Is a great a. It rhymes. Sure. Uh, a b. It's it's short and it's actually kind of like it engages you. Like where was I in sixty two? Yeah. I myself was not born, but other people surely were, and they were doing. But things. the nostalgia. Yeah. Well, and again, and, and at the time, you got to remember it was nostalgia for something that was only like ten years old, <laughs> which is super weird when you think about. It. Like if you if you like did American Graffiti now for the first time, it would be about like two thousand and eleven. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's which a is good point. Weird to think about, but it's it's that's that's how close we were to the nostalgia at the time. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, it's six years later, and it's just about um, where those kids, or as many as they could get, Richard Dreyfus wasn't available. Uh, where those kids ended up after that one fateful night. I want to say, was he not available, or did he just not sign up? There's I don't prob- think probably both, honestly, because you got to remember, he, of the people in American Graffiti, only a handful of them had their careers like completely blow up. Uh, Harrison Ford's didn't for a while, but it did. Uh, and uh, Richard Dreyfus, you know, would think the same year was the Goodbye Girl, and he would be the youngest Best Actor winner for many, many years until Adrian Brody came along. So he was doing pretty good, oh, yeah. and he probably didn't feel obligated to do this. Yeah, yeah. This is where we are in the Ford Fiesta, and we've talked about it. Like we're in that moment where Harrison Ford's Star Wars huge, and then Heroes. Force 10 from Navarone. Right. A few things he already had in the can, you know? Yeah. Uh, Frisco Kid, Hanover Street, this. It's like, oh, is he going to be? I mean, you could literally think he's not going to be the biggest box office star of all time until the 80s hit. And then Empire, Raiders, Jedi, Doom, Witness. Mm-hmm. And he's just off to the races. Yeah. A Blade Runner. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's a sort of sketchy period. And 79 alone was Hanover, Frisco Kid also in the mix, and Apocalypse Now in this. So it's a busy year. He's trying to make a name. And he's not even like, and he's barely in Apocalypse Now, too. Barely in more American graffiti. Well, that's very, 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 very true. These are these are basically glorified yeah. cameos. So yeah, it's the, where are they now for some of the decade's most popular film characters? New Year's Eve's in four different years in the 60s, 64, 5, 6, and 7. I think that's fascinating. I read about that and I said, well, I'm excited to see this more than ever, because I always thought this was kind of an obligatory sequel, and uh, I wasn't aware actually that the whole cast came back except for Dreyfus. Uh, so I got charged up to watch it, and I I think they made a lot of bold choices for something that could have easily just done the same thing. <laughs> Very bold. Yeah, they could have they could have just had this like big chill like reunion thing. Yeah, or like a friends type reunion thing. I mean, is this one of the boldest sequels? Yeah, this is bold. This is 
insane. This is an interesting approach. This is I, I really, really admire the the approach that they took from more American graffiti, where they actually American graffiti, you gotta remember it even at the time, it's kind of amorphous. Like it doesn't really have like a strict structure. Right. This kind of freewheeling follow everybody around kind of narrative like, it had been done, but it wasn't commonplace. Um so it was it was kind of innovative and strange. And so what I think is exciting is that when you, if you think about the original American graffiti as here's the last time all of these people were all together. And then what's the sequel? Well, that was the last time they were all together. They just yeah. split up and it becomes this, yeah. this kind of like family tree where you just start following them around. And sometimes they intersect again. Usually they don't. And, uh, yeah, so it's just a matter of we're going to follow everybody's paths. And it's interesting to see that from this one night that unified everybody, where everybody had a big moment, everybody had a coming-of-age moment on one day, their lives could not have been more different. And, like, one of them became a drag strip racer. Uh, one of them went to Vietnam. Two of them became the most insufferable wasps. <laughs> uh, and, and then one of them fell really, really hard into, like, the hippie movement. And... Their lives are all interesting, all fascinating, and I, I love every single one of these uh, little narratives that's being told here. And on top of that, on top of interweaving these stories from different timelines, this yeah. is something that uh, Lucas was very inspired apparently by Godfather Part Two. They also had the really clever idea, and this is something that like Steven Soderbergh would use later on in Traffic, where you're interweaving a lot of different storylines. You got to keep the audience clear on which one you're watching. They use different cinema uh, cinema techniques to film yeah. each one. So like the one that's set in Vietnam, they're using a 16 millimeter film as like the news and documentary footage people were watching of the war at the time. Uh, the drag strip racing was more of a widescreen, you know, almost like a sports movie kind of thing. Yeah. You know, the uh, the the hippie stuff. Uh, uh, is shot like Woodstock with a lot of picture-in-picture picture trickery. I'm sorry. I think that makes the movie incredibly exciting to watch. I think it's just... It really does. It's really got a lot of energy, and I love that about this movie because you're right. This could have been a lazy retread, and instead they really tried to make this interesting and exciting and bold, and I think they did it. I think they achieved it. They uh, put together four of Harrison Ford movies that we've covered already. There's a little Getting Straight. They did. There's Getting Straights in here. Well, we haven't talked Apocalypse Now yet, but it's a little Apocalypse Now. There's a little Getting Straight. There's mm -hmm. a little bit of love in the hippie stuff. And then there's uh, mm -hmm. American Graffiti and American Graffiti. Yeah, yeah. Literally Bob Falfa. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a direct pull. Lucas wanted to do it. Coppola said he didn't want to because the, the guy who made The Godfather Part Two said sequels were not such a great thing to be getting involved in. Hmm. But uh -huh. thank God, because then Lucas uh, doesn't direct. He just comes on as EP and focuses on The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. And also, I, weirdly, I read that he was developing Radio Land Murders around this time to give you an idea how long that took yeah. to find the screen because uh, he worked on that with Hike and Cats. Um, but he stayed on as an EP. And so I, last, I forgot that I was going to see at the top of the film a Lucasfilm limited production, or uh, so I'd love seeing that. Anytime I see that, you know, I get yeah. I get the the old Star green Wars, letters. Uh, yeah, <laughs> goosebumps. People forget just how varied Lucasfilm really was. Yes, uh, because they focus on Star Wars. Obviously, it's a big deal. They focus on Indiana Jones. It's a big deal. They probably remember stuff like Willow, but like they took some really big swings and did some really interesting experimental stuff. Like uh, what was it? Uh, Twice upon a time this animated film they did in the early 80s, which Harrison Ford is not in, so you will not watch it. <laughs> I don't remember uh, that movie, though. 
No, it barely came out, but like it's an interesting kind of um, almost like an early proto South Park animation by using like actual pieces of paper to animate it. It's one of the first films David Fincher ever worked on. Oh wow! And actually, the the, the protagonists are it's I'm pretty sure if if I, I've never actually read an interview, but if I I'm pretty sure that if you like interviewed the creators of Adventure Time. They would say that they had at least seen this uh-huh. because the shape shifting dog uh, in in Twice Upon a Time looks un- a lot like the shape shifting dog from Adventure Time, yeah. uh, and it's this and it's the hero's like psychic animal and everything. And and to George Lucas's credit, I think Star Wars became such an institution that people forget just how unusual it was. Yeah, it was radical as well. Yeah, it was it was basically we're going to throw all this money at a dead genre right. that never hasn't made money since like the 30s and go all out and take like, it seriously yeah. and just do it yeah. to the nines without ever apologizing for one second that they're making this yeah. movie and that's what worked yeah that's that he was basically when you consider what thx 1138 was oh, when you consider yeah. what american graffiti was even though american graffiti became kind of like the american idea of, of 1950s 1960s nostalgia at the time it was bold at the time star wars was bold and he was constantly trying to push cinema. And when you were constantly doing all these experiments, sometimes they don't work or sometimes people don't uh, appreciate them in their time. Hell, even George Lucas has gone on record by uh, saying that he thought some of the things they did in more American graffiti were a bad idea. And I'm going to say it right now, George, you're wrong. I think this movie works really, really great. Lucas of all the film school kids that came in, he is the one that is the actual punk. He was an actual greaser. He was an actual racer. And he kept that throughout it. Like when the studios wanted another easy rider and they're like, we'll give these other film school students money to make us an easy rider. And George Lucas is like, yeah, I'll take your money and I'll give you an easy rider. And he gives him THX 1138, <laughs> an impenetrable movie, especially for, for advertising for the studios. That is such a punk move Yeah, that American graffiti is the pulp fiction of its time. It's, it's told in a random order and, and nobody ever seen a story like that before and and as american graffiti was very insular it's about a bunch of teenagers worried about teenage things and more american graffiti is about young adults who are actually mm-hmm. coming into a sense of maturity and realizing that every single new year's eve is the start of a new chapter in someone's life or tragically in one case the end of someone's chapter yeah the, these are all people who have a lot of growing up to do so you have the one guy who at the beginning uh charles Nelson. Was it Charles Nelson? Martin. Charles Martin, Martin Smith. Martin uh, Smith, yeah. Charles Martin Smith. I almost said Charles Nelson Riley. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very different actor. Toad. Woo. Totally different film. Uh, Milner. But the great, the great, uh, also, Charles Martin Smith, the director of Airbud. Uh, he, uh, yeah, and a good movie, by the way. Uh, he, uh, at the beginning of the movie, he's very gung-ho about going off to Vietnam. He believes in the message. And then as soon as we're in Vietnam, he's like, this is stupid. I will literally shoot myself in the hand to get out of this nightmare. Like he's he's found himself into like this mash meets catch 22 kind of horror realm. Yeah. Uh, uh, Opie has found himself uh, in like a marriage that is increasingly on the rocks. And his his wife is now like interested in feminism. But what I love about their segment is she's really only interested in feminism as it affects her. Yes. Because all she wants to do is go to work and have no consequences. And so when she actually ends up going to this, uh, her, her brother's like protest at a college and seeing police brutality, she realizes, oh, I actually am not the center of the universe. And there's a lot of other serious problems out there. And that whole segment works really, really great. And then, uh, and then you've got this really wonderful thing about someone who just kind of got lost 
in the free love of the 60s and then realizes that they want something a little bit more meaningful than that. Mm -hmm. Not a lot. It's actually a very light and frothy kind of storyline, but I love it as a counterpoint to all of these really dramatic ones that we've got. Yeah, that's the other thing. The lightness of graffiti runs through all this. Not all the jokes work, you know, but it's always going for j the pure silliness that, that runs through most of American graffiti. Even though we're in Vietnam and other serious things and protests and, you know, police with, it, it's always, someone's always tripping and falling or doing something wrong. And, you know, at the beginning, Toad trying to get out of, he's pulling the clinger, trying to get out of it and trying to- He's like in the jungle trying to quote unquote accidentally shoot himself in the arm so he can go home and he accidentally like his gun accidentally goes off and like <laughs> hits like an outpost and they think that the enemy is attacking and they start unloading all their ammo like that scene in Predator against Charles Martin Smith yes. and then they send a helicopter and a jet plane <laughs> and they drop napalm <laughs> and it's like and then at the end he's just like and somehow I'm fine how the hell did I do this and then and then like he's like trying to get injured playing football yeah and everyone else gets in. Two people get so bad, so badly injured in one football game that they're they're able to get sent home, and he's just impervious to bullets. It's ridiculous. That poor guy. I love that sequence. It's a very damning satire of, frankly, a lot of really conservative viewpoints yeah. in the 1960s. It's a it's a very political film, and then and then you've got this incredibly sweet kind-hearted racetrack story yeah and it's it's weird because which could come out of the 50s that could almost be a 50s it, yeah. movie if it was a Very shot so. yeah and this whole sequence with this guy and he was you know he was the he was the the street racer in american graffiti and now he's trying to do it professionally and he ends up uh getting stuck with uh this one wonderful young woman who doesn't speak english so he doesn't know how to talk to her all day and uh they, they they're falling in love even though there's a total language barrier and it's really really sweet um, but the thing is, is that if you remember the ending of American Graffiti, and even if you don't remember it, they say it pretty early on in the movie in one of the one of the segments that takes place later on. He dies that day, that day, that day. So it's almost like that. It's almost they could have played it off like that one joke with Crispin Glover from Hot Tub Time Machine. Where like you're waiting to find out how this character lost an arm in the future. Oh right, <laughs> and he's always doing things that could cost him an arm, like playing with a chainsaw or like right. getting stuck in an elevator or something <laughs> like that. And you never know how it's going to happen. And the way that that ends up coming together, this last shot of the movie, basically, yeah, it's fantastic. Honestly, it haunts me. I actually think it's a really beautiful, subtle piece of filmmaking. I think about that shot a lot, just on a regular basis, just in terms of like. This is one of my favorite endings yeah. to a movie, honestly. I just think this is just because you're watching it and you you know everything as like a, the car is like coming towards you and the other car is coming towards you, but they keep going over these hills and then you realize neither of them is coming up over a hill anymore. Oh. And they, they just sit with it and let you think about it and let you feel it because that was such a nice young man. Yeah. And it's so sad. It's really quite lovely. And just as unprepared as you are for the end titles to come up, it, describing what happens to those characters, just as you are unprepared for that in American Graffiti, this movie lulls you into that there's going to be some sort of completion. We're going to see the car wreck that kills him. And instead it pauses and brings up the titles again. And you're like, they did it again. Well, it's very classy, is what it is. We don't need to see it. It would just it would just hurt too much, I think, at that point. Oh yeah. And that, but the, but I think the genius thing about it though is because American Graffiti ended by telling you what happened to these people. I know. Uh, so like you think there's what what else is there to tell? And the whole Charles Martin Smith thing, where you think he's going to die in Vietnam, but actually he was just yeah. MIA. Yeah. And it turns out he just 
just he just fled. <laughs> and it's like they managed to they they killed off this one character in this very sad, inevitable way, but they managed to save another character's life in this sequel. And that's really kind of beautiful. It is. It kind of it kind of makes it like I'm glad I saw it, aren't I? Like it's there's more to this than I thought there would be based on what I saw in the original American Graffiti. It's it's clever and fun. Yeah, and you reread the text, you're like, oh, went missing in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Went missing. Yeah. You know, like you realize, like, oh, yeah. they never said he died in the original graffiti. Never officially, uh, <laughs> no. It's playing totally fair. It's playing totally fair. Yep. And now, now there are two women represented. I guess that was a little thing. Presented now. Fair point. Uh, De- you know, Lori gets a job, and Deb becomes a country singer. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, yeah. So they. I I love her whole relationship with Scott Glenn. Looking very George Harrison, by the way. He is so effortlessly. <laughs> Uh, uh, charismatic in this one. He's so laid back. I love the way he like diffuses a bar brawl when this guy's like, hey, hippie, why don't you cut your hair? You look like an idiot. Yes. And like, he's like, you're right. I should cut my hair. I looked myself <laughs> in the mirror today and I said, I should cut my hair. I look like an idiot. But dang it, I'm in the entertainment industry and this is what's in right now. You make a very good point, sir. Have a good day. And then he just leaves. Oh, have a beer. What a, great, what a mature even. way to handle that. <laughs> She has just gone from this relationship with someone who is incredibly immature, who's completely undeserving of her right. and all the effort that she puts into him and his career and their relationship. And in one night, she's, she finds this guy who is actually just proven himself to be the polar opposite of that guy and is actually like totally worthy of her affections. And they may or may not end up together for all time, but I think she's going to be in a better relationship. Yeah, she has a very happy ending. And fun fact, I think we brought this up with American Graffiti. When American Graffiti came out, the end titles were what they were. When it got re-released, they changed Milner's death to later so they could do the sequel. Oh, no kidding. I forgot about that. That's the only change in the special edition of, of American Graffiti. That's not a lot for Lucas. There's, there's a couple of Bantas in the background in the Vietnam sequence. Yeah. Oh, now. okay. Seen them before, yeah. <laughs> you look carefully, they're there. Yeah. How fluttery does your heart get at the very end of this movie after Milner's been racing, but at the very end he gets into the classic yellow, uh, you know, the, the, the car from American Graffiti that just is so nice. It's a very well-handled sequel. And I, I, I think a lot of credit, and, and we, we talk so much about George Lucas and the cast, but we do need to give a lot of credit to Bill L. Norton, who wrote and directed this you, movie. You can't get George Lucas. You get the screenwriter of Convoy and the director, eventually, of Baby Secret of the Lost Legend. Oh! Which is awful. But despite those credits, he did have a long television career. We had a show on our Patreon called Not on Disney+, Plus, which is all the stuff that Disney owns the rights to but is mysteriously not on Disney+. Plus. Uh, and we stopped doing it after a while because it turns out the reason why a lot of things aren't on Disney+, Plus is racism. That'll go to Hulu. Baby Secret of the Lost Legend, I assure you, has not held up well. I'm gonna have to go check Disney Plus now for, like, Unidentified Flying Oddball, the cat from outer space, that darn cat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So do do you guys agree with me that it's better than American Graffiti? Oh, I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I see now why one would think when you said it was better than that, I'm like, that can't be. Bibbs is out of his mind. What, I get that what, a lot. Let's get him on here and have him explain himself. But you don't have to explain yourself. These choices that they made can certainly bring fandom to this movie. I do not have to agree with an opinion to be in rapt attention to why you think that, though. Especially you, Bibbs. <laughs> I'm like, I gotta hear this. I think this is easier to defend than my assertion that Caddyshack 2 is better than Caddyshack. This I was happy to see. Caddyshack 2, I still yet to pull the trigger on. It's got a better song. Well, listen, Harrison Ford shows up in a very uh, small role. So <laughs> Alright, let's talk about him. That's who this movie is really about, right? Officer Bob Falfa. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's why we're here. And he comes out of the gate, pointing Pull over there! 
and yelling, pull over, pull over now. now, pull over, right now, Stop. and it, that's I why love we it. love it. Pull over now. I love it. Did he get two points in in this one? He got one big one, and I think it just kind of continued right throughout. This yeah, yeah, but he's got two big points and shouts. I mean, good What's points eating? and shouts. Good points and shouts. Pull over, I'll shoot out your tires. I love his introduction in this movie because at first it's just, it's two hippies in a car and they're smoking joints, and then we see in the split screen uh, we see Harrison Ford. We don't know what's Harrison Ford yet. It could be anybody. He's wearing the sunglasses and the helmet. <laughs> but we see, we know there's a cop just sitting there, and we see them driving, and we see this cop just standing there on the corner, and we're like, ah, oh, those two things are in a collision course to wackiness, aren't they? Once he says his name, <laughs> his name is Falfa, Officer Falfa, F A L F A. You're like, oh. oh. So you turned pulling people over for a, 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 into a living just. Driving up next to them and screaming at them, you turn that into a job. Like, you really, you're living the dream. My life, friend. I love my work. Now, okay, George Lucas apparently was the one who wanted to incorporate all the different styles to tell the different stories. And when we went over American Graffiti, we realized... he's a radical filmmaker. Exactly. Well, he was one point developing Apocalypse Now before it went off to Milius and uh, right. and Coppola. So uh, you get to see kind of like what those sort of, and he was going to shoot it handheld and sort of POV on the yeah. ground type stuff. So he had all these theories. And th I think his version would have been cool. He's getting to employ them here perhaps with yeah. these uh, Vietnam sequences. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the uh, split screen segments were uncredited, edited by Marsha Lucas. Again, showing her face right. and some genius work. Um, and apparently she cut some of the uh, helicopter sequences in Vietnam as well to cover up story defects and oh they I'm sorry the uh, split screens were used to cover up story defects and a lot of her choices in Vietnam were to make three helicopters look like many 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 more so again right. the unsung genius of Marsha Lucas showing its showing its head it's always interesting to me when they talk about like yeah we were covering up story defects because it's so easy to latch on to those kind of anecdotes and say like oh that means the movie is bad uh, no it means the movie was bad and then they were trying to find a way to fix it it just means the movie was edited good, good point no absolutely <laughs> yeah, like I, absolutely yeah yeah okay there's this one scene in the godfather part two where uh fredo played by the great john gazali uh he's on the phone and he's in almost pure darkness it's just completely silhouetted and Francois Coppola is totally honest in this commentary track, and he's just saying, hey, if you're ever making a, a movie, here's a trick. Uh, film at least one scene with someone talking on the phone, but you can't see their lips moving, <laughs> because you can fix any plot hole you want <laughs> by just dubbing that in later. And like, so these kinds of tricks to like, just sort of like, hey, you know, this, this sequence isn't feeling really, really tight. Maybe we could use a lot more split screen techniques to sort of distract from the fact that this whole sequence with like getting the dude out of jail and then teaming up with Scott Glenn's band is a little uneventful. Mm -hmm. You can make it really exciting by just the presentation of it. Well, and that's the, that's the thing about this movie too. It 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 ex it expands the possibilities of narrative in a way that I don't know any other movie did. Yeah, the split screen is, is a technique that unfortunately people feel like it's really aged. Brian De Palma was always really fascinated by it, and uh, I will say this: a movie that is not great but is very bold stylistically. Ang Lee's Hulk. Oh, he absolutely. Tried to make that work. <laughs> He tried to make that modern, and I think he did a better job than he gets credit for. Yeah, uh, that's an in, that's an interesting looking movie. It's unlike any other uh, superhero movie. Yeah, he wanted to be comic book on film with that one for sure. And again, there's so many rules that we have in cinema that we are only rules because we don't break them often enough. If you didn't know, see the end of American Graffiti, you know, just imagine a movie you were watching fresh, and they go, "Oh, that guy in that last scene you you saw, he dies today." And we're telling that yeah. story a year later. 
that's so radical, like the possibilities. And other other big names who were involved, this is Howard Kazanjian's first credit. Uh, he was pushing for the sequel to this as well, and Lucas uh, you know, he came aboard. Eventually, of course, went on to produce Jedi and, and uh, Raiders yeah, and things like that. I know that name. Uh, and this is, outside of short films and one sort of feature that in history is unremarkable, Caleb Deschanel's first movie as a cinematographer. And right after, it's his first. Right yeah, after yeah. this... Black Stallion, and then this is no with no jumps. Black Stallion wow. being there, let's spend the night together, the right stuff in the natural. So, Whoa, I mean, this was a launching pad yeah. for a dude who is no joke. Uh, we got uh, Delroy Lindo in one of his very first roles. Uh, that was crazy. Right? Yeah. It's like, oh, my God, he was actually young. Wow. <laughs> uh, you got Jonathan Grease. Uh, from a real genius in Napoleon Dynamite, he's in this for a little bit. Oh right! Yeah, he was uh, one yeah. of the pit crew uh, with Milner. He's uh, Laszlo Hollyfield. Oh right! <laughs> and uh, and uh, allegedly, I, I didn't, I, I, I never see her. I don't know where she is. Uh, but allegedly, Rosanna Arquette's in this too. Yeah, she, she was a flyby. And Naomi Judd, this is her first film too. And somewhere, somewhere in there, in there just she's credited, and it's apparently her debut. Mister. Blinked, I blinked, I guess, and I missed her. But once again, a stacked, a sequel to a stacked cast movie stacks a cast. And for character actors, I got a shout out to Richard Bradford, who I didn't know now until I was doing this. He died in 2016, but he ended up being in Internal Affairs and one of my favorite scenes in the, in the Untouchables. He's a cop, a street cop who has comes to blows with Jimmy Sean Connery's character, oh, right. and he's super Irish. Yeah. And I just love him in that movie, and he's in this. He's a uh, Crease, I think his name is the. The upper the soldier who's the major who's ordering Toad around. Yeah. But I love his scene in Untouchables. Like, Jimmy, get out of here, Mike. Like, I just, <laughs> he's great. And rest in peace. I didn't know he passed, but it was good to see him in this. Uh, this movie also ended a career in acting. Uh, Ron Howard didn't really do any lead acting after this movie. You're right. This is It was, his... it was little cameos, it's and true. that was oh, it. Oh, God, from you're now right. On. It's true. In movies, he, he didn't do any major acting anymore. He's good in this, actually. I, I would have loved to have seen him act more, but whatever. We got Splash out of it, so that's cool. I also love the way that uh, uh, Ron Howard uh, tries to get out of with the cops are trying to arrest him next to the paddy wagon or wherever. He goes, come on, I voted Republican. Like, that's going <laughs> to yeah. be, oh, never mind. <laughs> Our bad. Didn't realize you were one of us, narc. Well, uh, I want to get to the last couple things we want to talk about. Again, if, this, if you love Harrison Ford, this is a good year because this came out and Apocalypse Now came out the same year. Same, I'm sorry, the same weekend so uh really yeah. i actually didn't that, know that that's and, wild uh, well according oh, to wow. internet and then monty python's life of brian that was your weekend at the theater huh. um that oh in august God, that's 79. Actually, wow that's a great weekend yeah, right that you can't miss that weekend that's a great <laughs> yeah. weekend oh my god uh, man look at lucas and coppola they come up uh, together doing a lot of different projects and like here they are same weekend apocalypse now and then lucas's version of apocalypse now as well <laughs> so in the harrison ford list of essentials does he have righteous anger i don't know he is anger <laughs> i don't think it's righteous i think he just digs that job and yelling oh, at people he, i don't think it's yeah, like he, oh the law nah yeah i just want to yeah, give you a problem yeah. he's just he's just he's just a fascist cop he's just like a narcotic substance to me it's one lousy joint under arrest, friend. Just yeah. anger. Does he point? We talked about that. Major pointing in Good this. Good points. Points and shouts. Pull over there! Pull over now! Uh, smile and charm, not so much. Shout and growl, yes. And does he hit a guy? No. Wait, wait, wait. 
there is a great Harrison Ford grin when he's done harassing oh, them. He, there, there's a moment where I, they're going back and forth and I wrote down grin on my thing because he he's just he gets that Harrison Ford smile. He's enjoyed arresting them yeah. so well, much. Well, she wants his <laughs> name and he's happy to give it to Make it easy for you, lady. It's 54362. Name is Falfa, Officer Falfa. Uh, but that uh, doesn't add to the Harrison Ford punch count, which now we've tracked. Uh, Bibiani, you might be interested in this. Been 12 movies, he has 12 times he's punched somebody. I kept expecting him to show up again in the cop melees, but he never did. They left him out of that. So. Yeah, I thought so too. That seemed like such an obvious thing that he would like just be building to that, and it would be kind of a through line. But I guess they only had him for like a day. Uh, or clearly they yeah. did, because he also would have played the helicopter pilot, because he loves to play a pilot. In <laughs> Vietnam would have been the ideal <laughs> yeah. cast. Thing for him. That would have been hilarious. William Bibiani, do you know the very first uh, person that uh, Harrison Ford ever punched on screen? Do you know which actor? Uh, ooh, 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 ooh. No. Jack Lemon. What kind of monster punches Jack Lemon? The same monster who, the, the third person he ever punched, besides a nameless MP in Force 10 from Navarone, the third person he punches is Barbara Bach. <laughs> What? <laughs> Harrison. Harrison, I'm very dis- You better punch a lot of Nazis to make up for this, Harrison. She asked him to. It was subterfuge. It's a whole thing. It's not... Uh, you know. sure. Yeah, I need to look... You know what? Still weird. But, uh, yeah, so he punched two people in Frisco Kid, two people in Hanover Street. He seems like he's punching, but then no. And I don't think he punches anybody in Apocalypse Now. But uh, when we get to Raiders, man, there's going to be a punch fest going on. Punch count's going to take a, a tick up. The same tick up that pointing got in Frisco Kid and shouting got in <laughs> Frisco Kid. Uh, well, I think that wraps more American Graffiti. If you have anything to say about the film, chime in at the Movie Guys everywhere on social media. That's where you find us or wherever you listen to the show. And of course, themovieguys.net. William Bibiani, thanks so much for joining us and sharing Thank your you love. Thank you so much. If it's, anything, if it's anything Adam loves, it's someone who just loves a movie. We don't even care if the movie's great, bad. We don't care about our own opinion. If you see someone loving a movie, there's, there's such joy in that. You know, I worked in a video store uh, back in the day, and there was a competing video store, and the two guys that ran that store were called the Hollis Brothers, and they were twins, and they were great movie fans, and we would call each other back and forth to share information if we couldn't think of something. This was before the internet, obviously. I haven't talked to them in a year or two, and I just got a text, a classic text that you would get a call in the middle of the night, like, hey, who directed this, you know, back in the day? And they're like, they were trying to track down a TV show that they had seen in the 90s and had the description of it. And I got one of those classic calls from the Hollis Brothers, and I was like, I have resources for this now. And I had texted Bibiani, and like a second later, he sends me a link to his podcast of them talking about the show, and I sent it to them. I was like, video store days are still here. We're all still working for the video store. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I could help. I mean, that's, that's so, uh, William Bibiani, where can people go to find more of the stuff? Yeah, you've been mentioning podcasts. I know you have other adventures. Tell us all about it. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm on Twitter at William Bibiani. Uh, I also host or co-host the Critically Acclaimed Network, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and other uh, podcasty places. Highly suggested. Thank you very much. Uh, then that's actually a series of podcasts I do with uh, Whitney Seibold, also of the Schmodown. Uh, we review new movies on our show, Critically Acclaimed. We answer our listener email in a show called We've Got Mail. We do a show called Critically Reclaimed, where we watch older movies on streaming. We also have a show, which uh, we just talked about, called Cancelled Too Soon, where we review TV shows that lasted only one season or less. Uh, and uh, also we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where we have shows where we review uh, every single episode of the 1960s Batman. Yes. We have a show we're reviewing 
every single film ever nominated for Best Picture in chronological order. Uh, we have a show where we're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in order. We just recently started The Next Generation, so hop on board. Amazing. We do commentary tracks, online hangouts, and perhaps most importantly, uh, I help run a soap store with my partner, M. Lapis da Silva. It's called Salt Cat Soap. You can find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Salt Cat Soap. There's a link to the store on Etsy there. You can also just search Salt Cat Soap, all one word on Etsy. And we sell soaps. We make designer soaps. Is it like Fight Club? Do you have big vats that you're turning giant? You know, you got to quote things? Fight Club when you're cutting the soaps and stuff, right? <laughs> no, that, that's a cliche. <laughs> oh, okay. okay, that's a cliche. But I will say this. Uh, there are different kinds of ways of making soap. Uh, and uh, we don't use the version that has lye in it. We have uh, shampoo bars, which is shampoo in bar form, which is really great. And I designed one uh, that uh, is specifically designed to be used on uh, your beard. I have another uh, bar I invented that's um, a kitchen bar where the idea is to whet your appetite. It's made out of uh, olive oil instead of like uh, goat's milk. And uh, it's got black uh, dried garlic. Uh, and uh, black pepper in there as well, and just a little bit of uh, uh, citrus to just make it pop. And it smells amazing, so when you're done cooking, you wash your hands with that, you go, oh my God, I want my food so bad. Well, in case you were wondering if he was authentic about the soap making, qu- all questions... <laughs> no, 100% <laughs> All questions answered. Fantastic. Yeah. All right, well, that's not that's no side project then. Uh, congrats on that. Uh, I'll check it out myself. Pibs, thanks for coming. Thank you. Join us next time when Harrison Ford gets back to his action ways with X-Men Apocalypse Now. Actually, it's just Apocalypse Now, and and it's better than the X-Men. Eh, we'll see about that. I wrote uh, two speeches. A long one and a short one. I'll give you the short one. Thank you. But it seems there might be enough time for the long one. Which is thank you very much. (laughs) 